In 1935, Franklin D. Roosevelt put his signature on the Social Security Act. Social Security. Social Security Act. Hi, this is Eric C. Kahn. This is one of the craziest people who pulled off the biggest scam in the history of the Social Security Administration. If he couldn't help me, nobody could. I guess he perfected a way to screw the government more efficiently than everybody else did. Everybody who came to see him got their benefits and they got them quickly. I thought he was helping me, but at that time he wasn't doing nothing but really fucking me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, just being honest. <laughs> everybody knew Eric Kahn was Mr. Social Security. From FunMeter, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We're the executive producers and directors behind the new Apple TV Plus documentary series, The Big Con. And yet again as a reminder, all four episodes are available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus where available. And this is The Big Con, the official podcast from Apple TV Plus, a companion piece to the documentary series of the same name. James, I can't believe it. We're here in week five, and the documentary series has been out now for for five weeks. Uh, We have been getting hit up by so many different people at this point. Um, A lot of people telling us it plays like this wild movie. And it it really does, but I'd like to think that in the movie version of this story, or at least the one that lives in Eric Kahn's head, he introduces himself as Kahn. Eric C. Con. <laughs> so it's supposed to be your James Bond impression. Well, uh, it's my best Timothy Dalton Bond, and uh, who arguably isn't the finest 007. And he only did two movies, but that's really Eric's favorite. Well, that you know, this is true. Well, if we're going to talk about that, it is important to note that Eric really did compare himself to James Bond, and he does this throughout his entire manuscript, either directly or indirectly. And there was a point that we just asked them about it. Why Why James Bond? At the time, I was very patriotic. I mean, you know, he was very loyal to his country. And I applied to the CIA and I realized how much they made and it wasn't that impressive to me. There's a certain glamour to it. He's a good guy. The exotic location and the women, to be perfectly honest. And I like the soundtracks. It gets me fired up. Eric's life, as told by Eric, is one big cinematic mission. There are even some moments in the manuscript that seem lifted straight from James Bond movies. But there's one very real thing that Eric Kahn did that made him feel closer to James Bond than ever. This is episode five, Con Me If You Can. On June 2nd, 2017, Eric Kahn had just finished meeting with the Department of Justice attorneys in Lexington, Kentucky, to prepare to testify at Dr. Bradley Atkins' trial. He was just two hours from home and was expected to go straight back there, where he would stay for the rest of the weekend until he was allowed to leave the house again on the day of his testimony. Instead, Eric got into this pickup truck and took off down the interstate in the opposite direction. Just as he was coming up on exit 15, he rolled down his window and tossed the backpack out onto the side of the highway. Then, he disappeared into the night. 
Hours later, FBI agents found the backpack. Inside was a thin grayish pouch made especially to block GPS signals to electronic devices. And that's where they found Eric's ankle monitor. I thought that was very clever. Amy Hess was the FBI's special agent in charge of the Louisville, Kentucky field office. In her 27 years with the FBI, she was at one point the highest ranking woman in the entire organization. When she got the call about Eric Kahn, the special pouch told her right away they needed to act fast. It's not like you can you know, run down to CVS and buy a Faraday bag. So you need to have planned for that. And why would somebody have a Faraday bag? Why, why would someone just happen to have one of those in their house? And so it was clear to me that he had plotted this for some time. And if he planned that much, what else did he plan? So what else did Eric plan? Well, Amy would find out when agents picked up a phony driver's license near the backpack. So that was just one of multiple examples of false leads, goose chases, if you will, or purposeful red herrings that Eric Kahn himself had thrown out to throw us off track. In just a few days, agents would turn up more than enough geese to chase. There was a receipt for a ticket on an Italian airline, which turned out to be a dead end. There was talk and emails of wiring money to a bank in Europe. And the FBI was getting flooded with calls about tips that Donnie Kidd says seemed like they were set up by Eric. We would get phone calls from hotels. Hey, we've had a reservation from Eric Kahn. Well, I mean, obviously, a person on the run is not going to call and make a hotel reservation in their own name. I mean, nobody's that stupid, right? But still, we had to follow up on it. And then there was a curious email coordinating travel plans that said, make sure you wear a coat. And it was signed by a J at the Embassy of Ecuador in London. (laughs) That's Julian Assange. WikiLeaks was, of course, all in the news at this time in this 2017 period. And so we had to follow that lead. We had to figure out, okay, is that really a thing? And so I actually flagged the issue to our headquarters in D.C. Again, the FBI diverted more time and resources to look into this lead, ultimately determining that, once again, Eric sent them down a rabbit hole. But it was manpower. It was He was playing games with us and causing us to waste precious time while he made his escape. Now, Eric wasn't really in touch with Julian Assange, but Eric being Eric, he couldn't just go on the run and disappear without a trace. I had read that 93% of the time when individuals do flee, they head south. That is why I purchased tickets from John F. Kennedy Airport in New York to Moscow, Russia. I had the departure date as three days later. The purpose of my flight leaving three days later was by the time the flight left, I would already be out of the country. The more Amy learned about Eric C. Kahn, the showman, with his mannequins of himself and his wild commercials, the more convinced she became that he was thumbing his nose at the FBI, and the more hell-bent she became on catching him. I realized the impact it would make in an area like Southeast Kentucky, like Appalachia, where these individuals trusted him. I mean, 
he was one of them. He grew up there, and yet he betrayed them for his own profit, for his own gain. And then when it came time to be held accountable, he he left. He left them high and dry. He he didn't care about them, and he thought that he was smarter than everybody else. And it was clear that uh, he he thought he was going to get away with this. And to me, that was even more of a reason to go after him. Eric was well-traveled. I mean, he could be anywhere. By now, news of his disappearance had made its way around Kentucky, and everyone wanted to know, where is Eric C. Khan? Let's roll a scene from the doc series. So the $600 million question at that time is, where is Eric Khan, and how did he get there? Where in the world is Eric C. Khan? Where's he gonna go? I don't know where he's gonna go. He's gonna go somewhere to speak Spanish. We decided to start a fundraiser. You could bet on which country he went to. We had Kentucky, Cuba, Ecuador, Thailand, and it really was the talk of the town, and frankly, it was a successful fundraiser for the animal shelter. He had this all planned out. Everyone was watching for him. His face is on every fucking billboard in eastern Kentucky, and he just disappears. I'm not so sure that he didn't just get in the car and drive back to Pikeville. My favorite option of those was that he was secretly hiding under the Abraham Lincoln statue in his parking lot. It's like Scooby-Doo's house, like it's just a little dog house, but when you go under it, it's like a big mansion. Most people actually bid on Kentucky because who can ever forget those commercials where Khan said, where you been, Eric? And he looked back at the lady and said, I never left. A week into the hunt, Donnie was enjoying Saturday golfing when he got more Eric Kahn news from a local reporter. And I'm coming up the ninth fairway, and my phone rings. And it's um, Bill Eastep from the Lexington Herald. And he says, hey, um, I got an email, and I don't know if this looks exactly right or not, but here's what it says. Tell me. How is it reasonable that the federal government takes such good care of its own corrupt federal judges and aggressively goes after me demanding a protracted sentence? I fail to see any justice in this. On the contrary, I see patent injustice. And sure enough, there were items in there that made us believe that it was con. Eric was also sending insulting messages to other attorneys and reaching out to former employees. Eric had been watching the news about himself, and he wanted the FBI to know it too. He referred to me um, by name, um, I believe, uh, in uh, at least one email that I saw. My subordinate supervisors made some comment about that that I was okay to look at or something like that, which was, at any rate, I thought, well, that's, uh, that's about what I would expect from Eric Kahn. But by that time, I'm thinking, this guy could be anywhere. Um, but uh, shortly uh, thereafter, he's, he's emailing, he's communicating, and I'm thinking, okay, he, he wants to be heard. This is our end. This is our way to get to him. He's almost wanting us to, to chase him. In mid-June, Amy Hess made a grand entrance to the lobby of the FBI field office in Louisville to give a press conference about Khan's case. She stood before a podium with a bunch of microphones crowded around it. 
the room was packed with reporters. News crews had their cameras rolling and spotlights pointed directly at her. Everything was going exactly as planned. Now, I was comfortable doing the press conferences because I'm the head of the office and that's normally expected of me. But even more importantly in this case, if it was anybody less than the head of the office, then Eric Kahn would not be interested. And on top, because I'm sure he thought that the director of the FBI should actually be doing the press conference, but he got me. Amy had enlisted the behavioral analysis unit on the case, and they were just like the criminal minds people on TV. They concluded that Eric was a textbook narcissist, and Amy was going to use that to her advantage. Her plan was to put on a show with the press conference to make Eric feel important so she could get her message across. I can say that, first off, we are looking for Eric Christopher Kahn. We need him to face justice for defrauding the U.S. taxpayer of more than $550 million in a Social Security fraud scheme. He has now fled justice after having pled guilty on March 24th for his role in that scheme to one count of theft of government money and another count of payment of gratuities. He was scheduled to be sentenced next month. And today, I'm announcing a $20,000 reward for his location that leads to his arrest. Amy went on to say Eric had left them no choice but to file charges against people he cares about, people who she thought were assisting him. That was code Amy knew Eric would understand. The one person he cared about more than anyone was his mom. They had a pretty strange relationship, but there's more on that in the doc series. I want to get his attention. I want to push his button. He thinks that we're about ready to go put handcuffs on his 80-year-old mother. I want him to think that, to try to flush him out, because I want him to keep talking. I want him to keep emailing the attorneys and the reporters and everybody else, because every time he does that, he gives us another opportunity to try to pull that thread and figure out where he is. And it worked. Three days later, on June 19th, Khan fired away another email, this time to one of the prosecutors with the Department of Justice. Amy had pressed the right buttons. Dustin, I am certain you wonder why I would contact you. This is a fair question. It is actually simplicity itself. I believe you understand me much better than the others who continue to insult me intellectually with their childlike conclusions. About this matter, the FBI has wrongfully threatened an 80-year-old widowed woman. Eric took shots at the FBI's long-standing history of improper conduct. It's quite possible they'd be embarrassed if they arrested his mom, so he taunted them saying he had a year to plan his escape. And so far, the FBI hadn't deviated from how he predicted they would react based on all he researched. When I fled, I knew the game was afoot. However, I have become rather bored with the game. Perhaps I can best explain my feelings by the use of metaphor. Dustin, Would you not find it boring to play chess with someone who consistently misjudged the game? It results in a rather boring and one-sided game. In order to make the game more interesting, I recommend they read the book Skyfall 
because it is truly much better than the movie. Sincerely, Eric. <laughs> he says in this email that I learned the FBI's playbook. And I shared that information with my office because I wanted them to feel this sense of, oh no, this guy thinks he's smarter than us. Don't take your foot off the gas pedal. And it became a question of, okay, this is not going to be a sprint. It's going to be more of a marathon, um, but that works to our advantage. We need to keep the pressure on. I want Eric Hahn to be looking over his shoulder every minute of every day. I want Eric Kahn to think that we're all after him. And it's just a matter of time before he sees us around the corner. And he's gonna see, he's gonna start seeing ghosts. He's gonna start seeing us in the shadows. Uh, and I want him to lose sleep. I want him to think that you know we have nothing else working right now than this investigation. But the start of this cat and mouse chase between Khan and the FBI ran in parallel to the trial of Dr. Bradley Atkins. Now, if you remember, Eric fled on the eve of trial, which he had agreed to plea and cooperate for as a key witness. When Dr. Bradley Atkins' daughter, Cheyenne, heard about Eric fleeing, she worried about what this would mean for her father's trial. And I just started crying. And I called my mom and dad and I was like, are they, is this going to be worse for us? Like, what, what is going to happen? And my dad told me that everything would be fine to keep praying about it and that they would see his innocence and everything would be okay. We didn't interview Cheyenne for the documentary series, but we did meet her and she helped us understand more about her dad. And it was clear that no one had really gotten their side of the story. Dr. Atkins had been brought up on multiple charges, including wire fraud and making false statements. Even when he was offered a five-year plea deal, he turned it down. He felt he hadn't done anything wrong, and admitting otherwise wasn't the right thing to do. If I had been guilty of what they said I'd done, I would have taken a plea deal. I had consulted God, and I didn't feel like he wanted me to plead. I would have had to have lied to have taken the plea. Who in their right mind risks 25 years if they know they're guilty? Obviously, the trial went ahead without Eric Kahn there to testify. Here's a moment from the documentary series. Alfred Atkins appeared in federal court in Lexington this afternoon. Investigators say the two, along with the judge, worked together to secure millions of dollars. Friday morning comes along and Dr. Atkins got on the stand. Dr. Atkins' argument was that most of these forms he signed off on that were fraudulently created by Eric Kahn to show a person was disabled were forgeries. So we were like, uh-oh, we weren't anticipating that argument. <laughs> he had like a nice, neat cursive signature, and then another form was your standard doctor sort of scribble. So he was saying that anything with that scribble was not his signature. We had obtained Dr. Adkins' bank records, and we were able to find that scribble. And so we got up there. Is this your check? Yeah. Is, is this your signature? With a nice one? Yeah. How about this one? And you could see the jury's eyes get wide. And the, you could see the judge's eyes get wide. After he testified that those were not his signatures, on the stand, after swearing to tell the truth. Even with evidence of the signatures, Dr. Adkins vehemently maintains his innocence. 
They wanted me to verify that those were my signatures. I didn't perjure myself with, uh, with you know, about 130 signatures that are obviously fake. I'm not going to ask for any of those signatures being mine. Cheyenne was there at the trial as a character witness. She hoped the jury could see her dad the way she did. A lovable guy who liked ACDC and wrote his own music. He had a laugh here. He was an asset to all of us here. His parents, his friends, my mom, myself, his bandmates. He likes to play guitar. A lot of my life, when I was trying to sleep, he'd be up in his room, turning his amp up, trying to wake me up and thinking it was funny. Like, everyone that meets him thinks he's hilarious. He just had this attitude that, like, put everyone at ease around him because he was literally always trying to make everyone laugh. The trial lasted for six days, and Adkin seemed optimistic on the day of the verdict. We were all sitting in a room. My entire family had came to be there for him. And uh, they got up. The marshals had came in, and they said they were ready for the verdict. And my dad jumped up and started going, and he's like, I'm so ready for this to be over. He was so excited. And my mom stopped, and he sa- and she said, okay, just give us a hug. We're going to go sit down. Then Adkins' whole family meandered over to the courtroom. They sat down, waiting intently. We just knew that this was finally going to be over, that there was going to be a not guilty. And when the judge started reading and that first guilty came out, it was just this sheer, it's a feeling I'd never felt before. My family was behind me. They were crying. The judge was belittling me. Uh, He told me I was an embarrassment to my family. So my daughter took exception to it. And I stood up and I said, that's not true. I love him and we all love him and we're here for him. And she, she said, we know he didn't do anything. And he didn't like that very much. I kind of gave her the, you know, nix that sign, don't do that. He'll put you in jail too, Cheyenne. <laughs> Stop that. And they asked me to leave. And my papa walked me out before um, anybody could come get me and escort me out. It was absolutely gut-wrenching. I was sick. Like, I just believed that it would all be okay and none of this would happen, and it was like a nightmare. My grandparents broke down. That's their only child. They had an infant die, um, and she was a few months old, and they felt like all of their children had been taken from them. Dr. Bradley Atkins was found guilty on five counts, including wire fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison, which many, including Atkins himself, thought was so extreme that it didn't quite make sense. The prosecution on the day of sentencing only asked for 15 years. So my lawyer told me at that time, we'll probably get about 10 then. And the sentencing judge said, oh, no, you know, I'm giving him 25. And to me, that was just unbelievable that the aggrieved party asks for X, and the judge gives them 10 years more than what they want. I've never heard of that in my life. The government was DO'd because I wouldn't plead. And then when he went on the run, yeah, somebody had to be the whipping boy. 
At the hearing, the judge said at the heart of the lengthy sentence was Adkins' testimony that his signatures were forged on the fraudulent forms. The 250 forms that were supposedly signed by Adkins cost the SSA about $7 million in disability benefits. That's just a fraction of the $550 million in government losses tied to this scheme. It's also worth noting that there were three other doctors who were caught up in the fraud, but Adkins was the only one charged. Dr. Adkins wasn't the only one caught in the crosshairs of Eric's choices. I was a little surprised. He was, um, I, I didn't think he would really run, but he really did. <laughs> Becky Rose was back in Eastern Kentucky, watching the news about Eric, hoping he would turn up. I knew that he was messing up. Did you want to just scream through the television like, Eric, what the hell are you doing? Like, you're better than this? Yes. I I sent emails to, like, all the email addresses we ever used, texted, like, WhatsApp and and, and things that we would use, like, anything that I could think of that might get a message through to him, I I sent messages to, like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Yeah, like, why, why are you doing this? Stop now. When the FBI came knocking on Becky Rhodes' door, asking if she knew where Eric was, It was one of the first times in six years since she started working for him that she didn't know the answer. They're like, do you know where he could be? And I'm like, did you check his office? Because I was pretty sure, and in my little heart of hearts, I'm still pretty sure that for that first week or so that he was on the run, that he was actually back in his little office, just hunkered down and hiding out. That's how I feel in my heart about it. Becky had been in touch with a reporter who was still receiving messages from Eric. In one, he said he had cut himself while taking off the ankle monitor. A good way to tell if Eric was sticking around town was to ask other employees if they had seen a doctor recently for an injury that wasn't theirs. Eric always doctored himself. He would send Curtis or uh, Ken to the doctor and be like, okay, my blood pressure's up, so just tell them your blood pressure's up and this, that, and the other. And they would get blood pressure medication and bring it back and give it to Eric. That's how Eric went to the doctor. And I asked the federal agents, I said, you know, I said, have you checked to see if Dirty Curdy or another employee has gone to the doctor to get antibiotics? Dirty Curdy was Curtis Wyatt who was, if you remember, Eric's right-hand man, he was fiercely loyal to Eric. We were told by several people, when the Wall Street Journal article came out, he came to work with a bag full of guns and said he was going hunting for SSA employees, which almost seemed obvious that it would be Sarah and Jennifer. And Curtis was deeply involved in Eric's little scheme with Charlie Andrus to have Sarah followed. There was a lot of people that kind of felt like there was danger associated with Curtis, like he was a dangerous person. And like, (laughs) or that the danger. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, Curtis was not dangerous. (laughs) 
<laughs> what, what, what? Why is so? Why is it so funny? Is it? You'd have to meet him and know him. He's very bumbling, and um, while he was intelligent, he um, he also liked to, to put on airs that he was more than what he actually was, or he knew more than he actually knew. Um, I, I think the whole danger, danger Will Rogers thing comes from um, he he had a gun collection. I don't think he ever shot the guns; they were all locked. Um, in cases and, and, and their uh, firing mechanism was locked and he brought them to show them to Eric. Eric had no interest in guns and was like, take those back and put them in your car. And that's what happened. Um, but for some reason, um, that that one thing kind of mushroomed into a thing like the, the ex-employees would all be like, oh, Kurt brought guns to the office. Like what, like we were building a militia up there or something? I don't know. Um, but it wasn't true. And, and Kurt, like I said, he had guns, but I, I would be very surprised to ever know that he shot one. The FBI had talked to Curtis, too. He seemed like he didn't know much. After a few weeks, the agents didn't have any legitimate leads. So they went back to Pikeville to talk to Khan's friends again. Curiously, Curtis remembered something he'd forgotten the first time. Wyatt decides to tell us that, oh, by the way, there is this white pickup truck. And I had driven this pickup truck to Lexington and parked it outside of the hotel the night that Colin disappeared. And I bet you he took that truck. And we're like, okay, that's interesting, so give us the license plate number. And what we found out was that that truck had actually been found way back on June 5th, abandoned in a parking lot by the Luna County, New Mexico Sheriff's Department. Investigators couldn't be sure the truck wasn't another red herring planted by Khan at the Mexico border to make them think he had left the country. So they went back to Curtis again and said, we found the truck in New Mexico. You know anything about that? And then Curtis remembered, oh, well, you know, in the months prior to Khan leaving, he actually sent me down there. And he asked me to cross the border at this specific crossing and to walk across the border. Don't drive, walk across the border, see if they check IDs going or coming back. Once you cross the border, see what's down there, you know, any places I should go, any restaurants, anything like that, and come back and tell me what the procedure was that you had to go through. Now at that point, we're starting to think, well, maybe Con did cross the border. When investigators went to Luna County, New Mexico, they found surveillance footage of Khan at a local Walmart. He looked totally different. He'd shed the suit and tie uniform he'd worn since he was a kid, but instead had a dark t-shirt on, and he was completely bald. I was on the road on my journey. I decided to pull over and shave my head. I was scared, believing every passing car was going to be the one that would stop me. Moreover, I thought there would be helicopters or roadblocks at any moment. I had the entire route mapped out in advance. By September, the FBI had learned a lot about Eric from Curtis Wyatt at that time. Eric had told Curtis that if he helped him escape, Eric would send for him in a few weeks so Curtis could avoid trouble. But three months had passed and Curtis hadn't heard anything from Eric. I think the process of Curtis Wyatt realizing 
that Khan had just been using him all these years was just after thinking about, okay, Khan is on the run. Who knows where he's at? Who knows how much money he has? But Curtis is thinking, here I am sitting at my house. I've got the FBI knocking on my door twice a week. You know, Khan's living this good life like he always has. And he's basically left me here with nothing. He's left me with a shit pile and no shovel. And I think he just finally got tired of it and realized, you know what? I think I'm going to do the right thing. The FBI decided to charge Curtis for assisting Eric's escape. Eric had been quieter than usual, so investigators thought this was an opportunity to send him another message. But rather than put on a flashy press conference, the FBI strategically dialed back and issued a small statement announcing the charges. Investigators hoped that Eric would catch on that he wasn't front page news anymore and he would start firing away emails again. And their plan worked. So whenever Eric Kahn would send emails to somebody and they would let us know, um, we would get copies of those. And we would go through those and, and look at those pretty minutely in detail to, to try to pick up if there's any clues in there about where he's at. I mean, is he talking about sitting on a beach drinking a margarita? Oh, I went to the best place for fish tacos uh, yesterday, and uh, it's right next to the Wendy's. We can start to hone in on a particular area. We were able to focus more and more on the region, uh, what they call the Northern Triangle with Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Sure enough, Eric had made it into Honduras by late November. Special Agent Luis Rosa was the only representative of the FBI in Honduras, so he was crazy busy. But the first week of November 2017, he finally had some vacation time. I was in uh, Western Florida visiting my kids, having for the first time in a year some time off. I was actually at my daughter's uh, volleyball game when my phone rang. When Luis picked it up, it was his boss. He told me, well, we have a high-profile fugitive that I don't want to discuss on the phone right now, but we need to go back. I was definitely the last line of defense. Maybe the best analogy will be ninth inning, three balls, two strikes, two outs. You either hit a home run or you go home, pick up the bats. Luis went straight home, packed his things, and left the next day for Tegucigalpa. He needed as much time as possible to plan how to get to Eric C. Khan in La Cieba on the coast. And he would have to do it almost exclusively on his own. Honduras was going through a civil unrest. There was not one town that wasn't affected by it, specifically the capital where I was in Tegucigalpa. You had tires being burned. The Perry Hotel got partially burned. This created an environment that was almost the perfect storm for a fugitive. Technically, I had no resources. Every single police officer was assigned somewhere in Honduras. I had to get creative. Luckily, the chief of the law enforcement agency that's closest to the FBI in Honduras was an old basketball buddy of his. So he called him up and said, hey, can I borrow a few of your investigators? At first, his friend laughed, but eventually was able to spare five people for him. So Luis had his team and was ready to go to La Cieva, where Eric was hiding out. Normally, it was a seven-hour drive away, but not this time. 
The roads between uh, Tegucigalpa and La Ceiba were completely blocked. Uh, police reports were that it was about six or seven roadblocks uh, built by people, not letting vehicles going uh, up and down uh, the country. Then the airports were closed. So I found myself with another problem, how I'm gonna make it to, to La Ceiba from Tegucigalpa. Luis knew his boss wasn't going to want to hear a no-can-do. He needed to get to Eric now. Needless to say, I'm getting some pressure because we believe that Eric Khan is trying to not only be in Honduras as a fugitive, but also go to to another country that probably won't have any extradition treaty to the United States. So that was a bit of a pressure for me. At 5 a.m. the next morning, Luis dropped into his regular jujitsu club at the embassy with other law enforcement military guys. Luis tried to keep his head in the fight, but his partner noticed that he was distracted. In most days, I dominated him uh, most of the time. He was like, he was like, all right, you suck today. All right, what's going on with you? Okay, this is not the normal usual, you know, I manhandle you, threw you on the ground, put you back up, it's not your day, what's going on? And that's when I told him that I couldn't drive from Tegucigalpa to La Ceiba. He happened to work uh, in the military. That's when he quickly offered his uh, C-12 plane that DOD had at their disposal. That was music to my ears. After weeks of close calls and operating a mini war room out of a hotel room, Finally, on December 2nd, 2017, six months to the day that Eric went on the run, Luis got a lead that Eric was craving Italian food in La Sieva. And with two scarce options, Luis believed it would be another dead end. But he still sent agents to both locations. Let's hear from Boyd again reading Eric's manuscript. Pizza Hut. When I finally managed to get to Pizza Hut, I sat down and ordered a personal pan pepperoni pizza and Azteca soup. Yes, in Honduras, Pizza Huts do have soup on the menu. I enjoyed Pizza Hut because it was the only place in the city that played American music. I finished my personal pan and was listening to the Eagles song, Hotel California. As Eric sat there, suddenly, the restaurant door flew open. Let's hear what happened next from the doc series. And there he was. I could tell it was him. Calling by his name, I called Eric, Eric Khan. He looked at me, I told him, I'm Louis Rose, I'm an FBI special agent, you're on the rest. He asked me, can I finish my soup? I say, nope. You're not even gonna take it to go. We're getting you started this afternoon with a developing story and the reported capture of one of Kentucky's most wanted FBI fugitives, Eric Kahn. His reported capture first appeared on a website from Honduras late Monday night. Now that the FBI had Eric, they had to figure out how to get him out of Honduras. And it wasn't a straightforward process. 
because of the civil unrest. I didn't know if I was going to be able to even talk to the right people to get him out of the country. Many scenarios crossed my mind. One of them was, am I going to have to let him go? Remember, I have no mechanism to detain him other than the host country, Honduras, detain him for me. There was a real possibility that you had to, like, that they could let him go because they just don't have the resources to hold him? Absolutely. I was able to agree with Minister of Justice so we can keep him in custody. One of my options is, well, in a hotel room. Wait, wait. There were no jails available? No, we, 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 keep it, we kept in a hotel room. This is when the story gets really good. As soon as Luis got Eric checked into a hotel room, he left him with three agents so he could go home and rest up. The plan was to get Eric back to the United States as soon as possible. But Eric, again, had other plans. It was like about 11 p.m. and I, the phone rings. The officer says, listen, I think I have something good going on here. Eric Khan is trying to bribe us. The deal was, you guys let me go. An hour later, you both are going to have $90 million in your bank accounts. $90 million. That would go a long way in Honduras. I froze. A lot of things are going through my mind at 100 miles per hour. That's on the next episode of The Big Con, the official podcast from Apple TV+. The Big Con, the official podcast, is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by FunMeter. And don't forget the entire four-part documentary series, The Big Con, is available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus, where available. This is episode five of six. A new episode will be out next Friday. The show is hosted and executive produced by us. I'm Brian Lazarte. And I'm James Lee Hernandez. Sean Cannon, Boyd Holbrook, Evan Miscogny, and Heather Schrering also executive produced and helped write our episodes. And Boyd Holbrook narrated Eric's manuscript moments. It was produced by Shannon Pence, our amazingly talented co-EP from the documentary series. The show is engineered and sound designed by the team here at FunMeter and mixed by Ben Freer. The music from our show comes from our documentary series and was written by Brian Tyler, Josh Zimmerman, Nate Alexander, and Sarah Trevino. Additional music by Pelman Music and Sound. And make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.